Hey, I'm Alan McGuire. And I'm Sarah Griffin. And this is Juvenalia, a podcast where we talk to an interesting person about a bit of pop culture that was important to them when they were young. Our guest today is a writer whose work primarily appears in the Irish Times. It's Patrick Frayne. Hello. Hey. That was a weird introduction. I'm sorry. <laughs> we're all okay. too excited to say it. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Thank you. We're very big fans. I brought comics. Yes, mm. it's very exciting. So we've talked on Rose Chestnuts twice before. It's your first Juvenalia appearance. Yeah. So what are you going to talk to us about? I'm going to talk about 2018 because when I was in my early teens, it was one of the first things that kind of blew my mind and introduced me to loads of other stuff. And I've kind of realized as I got older that all of my favorite stuff is kind of like got is Trojan horse thing where it's meant to be one thing, but actually kind of shoehorned into it is like the writer or the artist's obsessive interest in other more arcane, esoteric mm-hmm. Weird things. And 2018 was this amazing comic that lots of, it's still around, but its heyday was really in the 80s when I started reading it. And it started in 1977 as just a, a, as a boy's comic. You know, uh, a guy called Kevin Gosnell inside an IPC realized Star Wars is big. We need a science fiction comic. And he dragged in this really good, slightly mad writer called Pat Mills, who dragged in another really good, slightly mad writer called John Wagner. And they put together. 2000 AD, which is still there. And when they when they named it 2000 AD first, that was in the far, far future. And consequently, I still think of 2000 AD as the far, far future. Mm-hmm. Um, no one thought it'd still be there at 2000 AD. So what's the general, for people who don't know, who aren't familiar, because uh, it is a more of a niche thing now, I think. Yeah. What's the general vibe of 2000 AD? So when I was a kid, it was there was loads of comics, IPC and... British comics were a massive thing. They, um, I don't know the figures, but I watched something recently and like millions of them were printed up. Um, so there was IPC and there was uh, DC Thompson, which was a Scottish company. Mm. And they used to do like things like Buster and the Beano, which were kind of funny, uh, supposedly funny. And some of it I is funny. I used to love Buster. Yeah, I used to love Buster. Buster was like the, the, like the old version of the Beano. It was like the one you got into after the Beano when you yeah, kind of had your own sense of humour a bit. A bit ruder. Yeah. Like it hinted at other things in life. Um, beyond just mischievous schoolboys. Yeah. Um, but there was also loads of war comics. So I, re- I read loads and loads of war comics, which are also fascinating. Like, when you read them now, like Battle and Warlord and Victor, which was all about, mainly about World War Two, but no mention of the Holocaust, no mention. It was just about... Trench glamour. Tr- br- trench glamour. It was yeah. like... Yeah, no politics bla- Brave, plucky Tommy fighting yeah. Fritz. That's Ooh. what it was uh, uh, largely about. We used to have um, Victor Annuals in our school yeah. library. And like, so I, I love the Beano and the Buster and stuff, or Buster. So I would like, oh, that's a comic. So I will enjoy this as well. And I was like, this is like, what is this? There's like, there's one where like the, it ended with like the Iron Cross falling on a German and killing them. And that was like, yeah, the Iron Cross <laughs> crushed them. So. Well, it's like, I, I, this is an, it's an obsession of mine anyway, that it's totally normal for young boys to play war. Like mm. war. That's like playing pestilence or famine. The idea that it's just <laughs> fine. Oh, they're just playing war. They're playing killing each other. And these comics were where we used to get our ideas for playing war. And then you go out and violently play war. Um, there, Even with, like, Battle in particular used to have, it was Pat Mills who later did 2008 did a great strip for them called Charlie's War, which is actually really good and stands up and you can get now in these deluxe editions. So they were always, what, what I'm fascinated by when I look at the stuff I loved as a kid and a teenager is there was loads of stuff where there wasn't as many outlets as there are now. So if you wanted to do something weird and interesting, you had to find an existing outlet and try and kind of squeeze it in. So obviously when 2008 happened, there was already this legacy of kind of anthology comics where you'd pick it up for 35p or whatever it was, or 10p in the 70s. And there'd be four or five ongoing four-page strips. And so unlike American comics, which is like one big story, there was always like four or five stories in these comics. So that was the template for 2080. And the only difference was they got a bunch of mentors in to do it. And (laughs) they started to just shoehorn in crazy, crazy ideas that... um, that really did expand my mind as a kid. Like the the first anti-heroes I read were in 2008 because like their big character was Judge Dredd, who's Mm. subsequently been made into two films, one bad and one good. And uh, Judge Dredd was basically a fascist. And it was, and Judge Dredd was a, a fascist cop in a fascist society. And a really, John Wagner used to write Judge Dredd it was a really satirical society. Like, they'd take things, like, it was meant to be a mega city one, which was like this massive post-apocalyptic city in America, except they all had, like, all the blocks had names of, like, 
British TV characters. So there'd be Rod Hullblock or, <laughs> you know, I don't know, like it was Esther Ranson Park. There'd yeah. be all these kind of things. And then they'd satirize. Um, I mean, they got pulled off the shelves for a few times for satirizing uh, big brands and taking the make out of, um, you know, certain ads that were on TV. And it was just really witty, really clever. Loads of the writers went on to kind of recreate like American comics. So like like Alan Moore would have started in 2008. He did this amazing anti-Thatcherites post like dystopian strip called Hallow Jones, which is about this unemployed young woman in a futuristic city, which is like loads of bands used to wear Hallow Jones T-shirts in the early 80s. It was like it was a gateway drug to cooler stuff. <clears throat> so. That, that's am I selling it? Oh, and totally, that, yeah. And is that countercultural thing what kind of separates it from the likes of DC and Marvel and and like that kind of the superheroes? I think Britain generally was. I, when I look back at the culture that really shaped me, Britain was re- in a really interesting place in the eighties, and I think it was because of Thatcher and it was because of punk. There mm. was all all this subversive stuff was kind of creeping out into the mainstream, and so like loads of stuff that I later realised were cool when I was teenagers were kind of subtle little references you'd see in a 2000 AD comic mm. um, and loads of sci-fi ideas like they were obviously just reading loads of great sci-fi like uh, I've got one here Nemesis the Warlock which was written by Pat Mills like it's got lo- it's the first time I ever saw um, kind of steampunk stuff you know so these these were all there was all these kind of big sci-fi ideas mm. which I still love I think sci-fi is how people think you know, it's a good way to think about yeah. the world and, and it's a good way to philosophize about the world. Um, and all these things were just kind of crammed into the pages of what was, at least in the early 80s, still a children's comic. Yeah. But I the late the, 80s, it was shifting. Even you know? the visuals don't look like children. They don't, they don't, they don't it, it really draws into kind of stark relief what would have been considered for kids that then and what's considered for kids now because that's like, I don't know what that is, <laughs> but that's... Like, a, a, that's Eldritch as all fuck. Yeah, we're looking at Nemesis the Warlock pictures. Driven, that was Brian Talbot was the artist. He's gone on to do loads of really cool indie comics. Um, he did one called The Tale of One Bad Rabbit, which is amazing. Um, uh, I have a pile of them here that are kind of randomly selected because I don't keep my comics very well, but they're all in a pile of my attic. So I was in the attic earlier. Um, the cover of this one, there's a big picture uh, from one from 1988 is by Brandon McCarthy, who co-wrote... The last Mad Max movie. Wow! Because oh, cool. he's, um, but now is like a mad Trump. Uh, oh, yeah, uh, came from Judge Dredd risk, and yeah. went. Wow, that's a, a turn. Um, it's like Judge Dredd or <gasps> Tales always so, seemed. Holy well, shit! So they brought in like I just remember all. The, I picked it up. I remember it being in the shops when I was a young kid, and it used to scare the hell out of me because the covers are often really, really scary. And but weird. that's what you want, isn't it? That's yeah. That that feeling of like, oh my god, this is awful. I can't look away. Like that's exactly the feeling. That I you definitely want. asked to be bought two thousand eighty, but wasn't allowed because it looked <gasps> scarier. Oh, and I was worried. So hey, scared more of them. What are you doing there? <laughs> so, like that's Zenith the war. That's a Zenith by Grant Morrison, who went on to do yeah. Arkham Asylum and loads of big American comics, and like loads of what happened in the mid eighties is uh, American comics was kind of they were stale and they kind of started poaching these writers, a lot of whom had started in 2018. So they had a really uniform way of drawing their superheroes. They had a really uniform way of telling stories. And so they get these more subversive guys like Grant Morrison or Pete Milligan or Alan Moore who did kind of quite weird stories in 2018. Like like Zenith is about... Zenith's another of my favourite first anti-heroes. Like, there should be my baby's first anti-hero, <laughs> like a little booklet. Um, Zenith was... A guy with like really, really crazy superheroic powers, superpowers. But he decided that he didn't want to fight crime. He wanted to be a pop star. That's and isn't that like that sort of that's <laughs> that I can see where the wicked and the divine kind of grew from. Like that's yeah. really that's a really interesting idea. Like so, and he gets dragged in occasionally. He's not all bad, but he's not really good. And mm. he gets dragged in occasionally to save the world, but he doesn't want to. And these are, these are like mind blowing ideas when all you're used to is like more kind of heroic, straightforward tales um and the art was mad it is like mad. there was no so in american comics there was a kind of american comics are a little bit more diverse now but when you picked up american comics in the 80s they, they tended to have the same color street games they tended to have the same types of figure drawing and then you'd pick up 2000 ad and every story was different now there's awful terrible stuff in there too like but it, it was that hit and miss rate there was always something mad that's slightly 
blew my child mind. Because they were taking risks, obviously. Because they were taking risks. Yeah. And and they did, like, when I, I remember my parents took all my 2008s away but when they realised that it actually had sex and violence in it. And they were, and that was like one of the greatest upsets of my early teen life. I had huge arguments with my folks, mm. um, and they put them all in the attic and said I could only get them when I was older. Oh no! When I was about nine, uh, one of my neighbours, um, he had two. Like, he had a few 2080 annuals, or like not annuals, like um, like hardback graph, like compilations. Yeah, yeah. So he gave me like two of those, and my mother was like, "I don't think you should read those." But like that's where I saw like Rogue Troop for the first time, and actually saw what Judge Dredd was about, and even. Yeah. The weird details of Mega City One. Well, I still remember this actually being a really good idea, even though it's in a fascist super state. Yeah. Is there was a bit, it was just like a little like voiceover box in one panel where it was like there will be rain from three ten to three twenty today to wash away the piling competition or the pie throwing <laughs> competition at three pm. I was like, that's amazing. Like they had all <laughs> these mad super. Like Judge Dredd is um, like people when they put him on the big screen, they kind of get it wrong. So the whole thing which was read is he was the straight man for this crazy world. So there was all these maddest like notions of, okay, in the future, maybe ugliness would be really cool. So there was a trend for people like disfiguring themselves. Mm. And there was all these bizarre, cartoonish things going on in the world. Like all of the secondary characters were like mad circus type characters. Yeah. And he'd be like this scowling, scowling a goody who was really a baddie he was a goody but he was like a fascist cop yeah um and they were satirizing fascism and they were i mean a lot of the writers went on you know v for vendetta was written mm. by alan moore which is like and uh, you know for my fucking sins <laughs> i think that is my favorite comic book v for i vendetta. love v for vendetta because he was doing that at the same time he was writing stuff for 2018 jesus it's yeah. go and i i can't i still have a soft spot for the film like i do it's bizarre and camp and not at all in line with the comic but it's I don't know why and like obviously it's been destroyed by the mask taking yeah. on a life of its own and all that but I remember reading that when I was maybe 14 or something and just being like oh this is fucking yeah. this is talking about something that I don't really understand uh, this is talking about something and that's exactly what I used to love reading mm. 2018 and, and smash it's actually like which I also used to read when I was younger is you got the sense that they weren't the the writers were adults who weren't talking down to you mm. they were telling you stuff that you didn't quite understand yet but, but they had confidence that you they they knew you'd figure it out in a while so you'd be reading things and there'd be references to books there'd be references to music there'd be references to philosophical and scientific ideas yeah um, and half of it would be going over my head. Mm. Like, I sometimes reread them and, and see things I never saw at the time. Um, the one you're reading there is... These this is two amazing. These, this is, I, I feel like I'm really... I feel like I have my face in it. I'm like, this is absolutely so fucking unreal. So the art there is by Kevin O'Neill, who was one gorgeous. of the other guys who was there at the start. Um, it's called... He, he, oh, no, the, 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 head, the title on it is that Sleep is No Refuge for Impure Thoughts. So, so Nemesis was... So this is like the type of subversion that blew my mind... Pat Mills was really, really political and he was always shoehorning pretty far left politics into things. So Nemesis was set in a universe where humans were the baddies and they were trying to kill all the aliens. And the baddie was Torquemada and the goodie was Zenith, although Zenith, not Zenith, Nemesis. Nemesis was like a big kind of demon creature. And Torquemada was basically a fascist who was based, Pat Mills said, on one of his school teachers. And the best one, there used to be T-shirts, like, Torquemada was kind of really scary, but played for laughs. And he used to, he had a saying that used to be on t-shirts at the time, which was like, be pure, be vigilant, behave. (laughs) Which was like, just an amazing kind of, just an amazing concept. Um, And then Pat Mills went on in the late 80s to, they did a spin-off called Crisis, which was definitely for adults. 2008, it was unclear at the time if it was a kid's comic or not. Yeah. and I think now it isn't considered to be for adults, but um, Crisis was a really political comic. It was all about um, kind of exploitation of the third world, fascism, all of the stories. They had a story called Troubled Souls by Gar- Garth Ennis, who went on to do Preacher. It was his first comic, and Troubled Souls was set in Belfast, and it was about a young man who was being pulled into kind of paramilitary activism. Um, and these were kind of just amazing to read this when you're, you're a teenager, like somebody like I don't know if mainstream publications would deal with that stuff now because there's so many niche places people can get their politics or get their weird art. Um, but uh, but a mainstream like a publisher wouldn't cover like and fantasize 
for the want of a better like phrase, but they wouldn't do the science fiction mirror of current affairs like yeah. in that direct conversational way now I don't think I think we live in a kind of a I, I, I think people are a bit more careful or not more careful or like afraid or sanitized definitely not something that falls in between like could a child pick this up or a teenager yeah. pick this up like comic books now are like I have a long running protest against um, all Marvel and DC um, content that, that, that exists in the world because I find it exhausting and alienating Um but it's not, it's very much about selling toys as opposed to saying something. Does that make sense? So, but I think it's because I mean it's one of the one of the few benefits of there being less outlets is mm. that there's so if somebody wants to let their freak flag fly, they have to find a way of doing it in a mainstream place. So two thousand AD still exists, but it's a very niche thing now, I think. Mm. And I think everything now has a sense of who its readers are. Yeah, it's more targeted. Or its watchers are or its listeners. Um whereas I think in those days when I was growing up, a lot of the things I really liked um, were ostensibly aimed at one thing to get permission to do it in the first place. Yeah. But then the people working there, like in Smash It's in the late 80s, I think me and my wife Anna are always saying that our sense of humor is just grew mm-hmm. from Smash, Smash It's. Because Smash It's was like doing all the things a teen pop magazine should do. It was giving you the lyrics. It was like giving you these posters. It was giving, giving you these interviews. But they'd like ask questions like, um, so Van Halen, does your mother golf? And then they'd have these conversations that were clearly coded ways of talking about class or just taking the piss out of um, kind of cliches. And it was because it was like Sylvia Patterson, Tom Hibbert were kind of two of the main writers and Neil Tennant, who went on to be in the Pet Shop Boys. Um, he was one of the early editors. And they just, they were coming from punk. They had a sense of subversion. They loved pop music, but they knew you could simultaneously love something and take the piss out of it. Which is the best oh. kind of humour, Which it? is the best yeah. kind of humour. Because it comes from love yeah. and it comes from like a total yeah. knowledge of something. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's a problem I have with roast battles, where the only good roast battles are where the people really know each other and the insults are super specific to that person. Yeah. Sometimes roast battles, they can just be like a generic about that person's, you know, race or height or something. Yeah. Whereas when it's about that person and how bad their career is, for a very specific reference to something, that's good. And that's what Smash Hits did, where it knew Duran Duran, it knew all five of them, and yeah. knew everything about them. So it knew with pinpoint accuracy how to take the piss out of them, but from love as well. And they'd play along. And yeah. like the, and, the, and actually, I mean, I think lots of things about, I mean, this could be just the ramblings of an aging man, but when <laughs> I look at the 80s, I think loads of things occupied that weird space. Like if you look at the, okay, there was loads of bad, bad pop music, but if you look at the retreads of Top of the Pops, there's kind of really weird pop stars. Like mm. Culture Club were a weird pop group. The Pet Shop Boys were a weird pop group and they were huge. So you always felt like, and it's partly because they weren't like pop stars now, not to denigrate because some of them are amazing. But a lot of them were coming from countercultural places in the first place and they kind of ended up in the mainstream, mm. which is the best way to be in the mainstream. <laughs> and which is the best, like it's my favourite type of art is stuff that, um, I wrote a thing recently about stuff that's better than it ought to be. Mm. It's stuff that has no business being this good or this clever. because This it's is te- too fucking weird. Yeah, yeah, this is technically meant to be the stuff that, the just cut off stuff that we're giving the children or the, the stupid kind of, uh, I don't know poppy stuff that we're giving to people who don't think about stuff mm. but actually what the writers are doing is they're making something they're crafting something with love and they're they're ticking all the boxes you know like in 2018 I, I guess the boxes that had to be ticked were a certain amount of violence and uh, weirdness and, and sci-fi spaceships every now and again mm. but as long as they ticked those boxes they, they could they, they could they do wanted. anything else they wanted and they kind of put all sorts of weird stuff in there um you can get loads of it now in graphic novel form, so you don't have to go kind of tracing for back issues. Yeah, there's full Judge Dredd collections, like yeah. from, from all the way up from seventy seven. And there's Nemesis. I got I got yeah. a big thick, um, kind of two hundred page version of Nemesis recently mm. that has like. Have they ever inked them? Uh, colored them. Yeah. No, they they used to do reprints from America that they'd color. Yeah. So it was to do with the cost. Are, the details are fucking like yeah. you couldn't yeah. color that. Like no. the details, these images are not like chill panels that kind of yeah. allude to action. There is a lot visually happening on every fucking page. Like it really moves. 
Yeah, they bankrupted right. a lot of their artists because the artists put so much in. Effort. Yeah, like and like details. Kevin O'Neill stopped doing comic art for ages. He just did designs and covers because of how much he'd, he'd yeah. spend working yeah. on something like that for very little. And there was a big fight then with um, with the original owners of 2008 about rights. A lot of the artists wanted to have the rights to their art and their characters. Mm. Um, and I think that was resolved eventually, but left a lot of really talented writers and artists bitter like they repackaged zenith recently the superhero one i was telling you about and i think grant morrison had an ongoing fight with 2080 over who owned it i don't know how it resolved in the end you see it's odd when you're working in a stable of characters and the level i just cannot get over the level of detail that these drawings contain and how gutting it must be to work so yeah. hard and so closely on something that then ultimately realised doesn't belong to you. But it's, it's like it's different when you sign up for it. Yeah. yeah, it's the work for hire thing. It's different when you sign up for it and you go, cool, I'm going to visit this character. But originating it and things like that is kind of more messy and complicated. What I What's striking me holding these is that like, you could really, I can imagine being little and just looking at these pages for hours because like every panel has like five things going on. Like, it's really, there's a page I'm on at the moment that has a sphinx on it that is absolutely gorgeous and heartbreaking looking. And you, like, you could just kind of look, look at yeah. these pages for as long and as you, you want. And you like, I reread these comics. These are the ones, I kind of lost interest in the 90s. There's another one, I'm just showing them comics <laughs> now. There's another one, Swifties Return. So they did lots of kind of these, towards, particularly towards the late 90s, there was, late 80s, there was a lot of other comics. There was a great one called Deadline that Brett Owens and some other people did, which was specifically an overlap of comics and pop stars. And that's where Tank Girl comes from. Ah. Yeah. And Jamie Hewlett, who drew that, Swifties Return. I can see Tank Girl face yeah, on this. So yeah, so yeah. Jamie Hewlett, who also did gorillas with with Damon <gasps> Alburn. Oh my god, and it really those yeah. faces, they really yeah. are so gorillas faces. He, he worked a lot for 2018 and Pete oh Milligan, the guy who wrote that, did loads of great stuff like Shade the Changing Man for DC Comics later. And they did so they there was this kind of trend towards the late eighties of doing more explicitly hip stuff, which was cool if you don't understand what hip is. And you're, yeah. you're like, well, maybe I don't want to be a fascist policeman in Mega City One. Maybe I want to be like a hip guy who knows about bands. and Who works in McDog Burger. And happens to yeah. go on time travel adventures. Yeah. Um, the, the, the character design. And the black and white, I still think, really holds up because everything's colour now. And that was just cost. It was just cheaper to do black and white comics in those days. Um, they they started doing these full color painted things in the kind of late eighties, early nineties. Some of which are great, and some of which are kind of overkill. Cause There's an ad here in the back that says, uh, "Dare you dial the labyrinth of terror?" And it seems to be like a phone game. Have you ever seen this? No. The gauntlet is cast down. The evil unfolds, squirming, slithering horror. Will you take up the challenge? Pit your skills against the forces of chaos. Face searing fireballs and the moans of hellish demons in this vast, dank dungeon. Fame and riches await the courageous. The telephone is your gateway. Dial if you dare. Steve Jackson. Let's see if it's there. Presents F-I-S-T, Fist, Fantasy Interactive Scenarios by Telephone. What the fuck is this? This is, uh, I'm going to take a picture of this and do uh, do a research upon it. Holy shit. The ads, I, I love, um, like in, the, in that issue there, um, the this, this sleep is no refuge for impure thoughts. There's an introductory panel on the inside cover as well. Like the, the, yeah. the details around the sides of it are fucking amazing. Oh, and everything was, they used to pretend that the editor, was. this was a legacy that goes right back to the start, was an alien called Targ. He was here to give us thrill power. <laughs> um, Borag Thung, Earthlets. <laughs> that's, that's, a, that's a greeting from yeah. his native Beetlejuice or whatever. It's fucking unreal. What I loved about 2080 was that it's, when I read it, it was like, it was more manageable than I thought it was going by the covers yeah. for a nine or ten year old. But it was still just enough out of reach that there was something to be solved in it that wasn't yeah. part of what you were getting from anywhere else. And the humour of it is so British. It's that kind of it's Viz and 2080 have a very similar. Viz is the other thing yeah. for me. He's like, I kind of feel like people underestimate how influential Smash It's 2080 and Viz are yeah. on modern comedy. Oh, yeah. Like there's there's loads of kind of things I watch now and go, that's someone who wa- read a lot of Viz mm. or that's somebody who read. Because everyone thinks Viz was just smutty. But Viz yeah. is actually brilliant at absurdism. Mm. Like, um, like even those letters are still getting published. Like they yeah. still go viral on Twitter like on a weekly basis the letters in, in Viz or the top tips yeah. yeah yeah. 
Sorry, I'm literally just <laughs> reading this. I'm just, I'm terrible. Sorry, oh, I am. Art competitions. Completely. Like, did you ever send anything in? No, I didn't. I, I never had that. Um, so that's, yeah, I, that's good. Let's just read them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> just <laughs> turn the recorder off and read them. Oh, yeah, so then, so this one has Simon Bisley. Do you remember him? Oh, he's that Tim Bisley in Space is named after. No yeah. way. Yeah. Of course he is. So Tim, yeah. that's, Simon like Pegg is definitely that motherfucker. Oh, Simon Pegg was a grew out of this yeah, yeah. world. So he was a fan favorite because he did these like beautiful, fully painted art things, and then he realized that he was being bankrupted. Too. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of them. They stopped, are beautiful. A lot of them did this amazing work and then never did stuff of quite. The They're same almost body. like Francis Bacon paintings. Yeah, yeah. The, the the bodies are a bit like Brian Froud who used to design for Labyrinth for, the, yeah. for, for, for Jim Henson as well. They're fucking mm. unbelievable looking. So when you were reading these as a kid, did they push you towards writing? Like were they sort of the first seeds of wanting they to go and write things? Drawing, drawing. More than yeah, so yeah. I did loads and loads of drawing and trying to draw characters and stuff. Um, I don't think I wrote bit because of 2008. I'd written because of Douglas Adams, which is yeah. the other kind of thing I was really into at the time. All the nerdy stuff from the... I got a cassette tape um, of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy radio play when I was about 10. And I used to... My dad gave it to me and I used to listen to it on a Walkman over and over and over again. And then when I was a little bit older, I got the books. But I was also equally completely fucking obsessed with it. But that humour then, even within Douglas Adams, isn't far from the kind of his humour. Like that kind of like... It's very funny. Like all the way through, like there's his writing trend. is so funny. There's a kind of trend in British comedy, like so. I think Americans are always like America caught up in the nineties, maybe. Maybe, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I think there was this trend of mainstream humor in Britain was always subversive, like in the mainstream. You can go back to things like Julian and Sandy on Round the Horn, which were like they were clearly meant to be two gay men. And they were speaking in Polari, and this was on mainstream radios yeah, on BBC. Yeah. Um, th- I think British people had a high tolerance for kind of taking the system down from the inside <laughs> because it didn't really take the system down, yeah. as yeah. we all know. Even as stuff like, <laughs> I'm sorry, I haven't a clue, which is just this yeah. completely anarchic, like Morning Crescent uh, when I first heard I didn't hear that till I was like 21, I think. But the fact that that was a mainstream radio thing, for anybody who doesn't know what Morning Crescent is. It's a game on a panel show where there's no actual rules. Everybody just pretends there's rules <laughs> and they name tube stations. And the audience plays along and goes, oh, when someone names a particular tube station. And then eventually someone will say Mornington Crescent and everybody will cheer and that's the end of the game. Whoa. And that was like on mainstream like Radio 4, I guess, for like 40 years. We they would do that every things week. like fucking shooting stars and like, mm. you know, like they, yeah. they were really bananas. Like mm. there was... It was just absurdity all the way down and kind of a fearlessness to it as well. Like, because within that, it's like science fiction within that they're like the same within that level of heightened metaphor. And in the humorous case, absurdity, you can tell the truth. Yeah. And you can say things that you otherwise can't. You know? I just think people were just let get away with stuff because it was like, ah, they've nothing else. Let them, yeah. have, that. <laughs> Let them poor, have that. Poor fucking freaks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I still have uh, piles and piles of these up in my attic and they're all in, I'm not very organised and they're all in, not, like some of them are falling apart. This was like a random selection of the 80s ones. The so, feel of them is unbelievable. Yeah. Like you kind of forget what that newsprint kind of, it's not newsprint paper, but it's that really particular kind of paper feels like. And it's so heavily inked as well. Like it, it, you can feel the print on it, you know. Yeah. Um, I used to just love getting them with stuff things things are better than you know digital foggy stuff things you can hold mm. I like things you can hold I miss things you can hold and that's kind of I think that's what when I was when I was like when I disappeared into the pages of it there I was like Jesus Christ I really miss holding like tangible bits of culture yeah. you know mm. like ASMR like there you go um, tangible bits of culture do you do you get the ASMR thing no no, I think it's a, I think it's a sex thing, and everyone's lying. <laughs> I do get it for some. I get it for no. the wood, the wood tapping ones. Do you? Yeah, the wood tapping ones work. And I, I don't think it's a sex thing, but I do. Yeah. Like I'm always a bit like. Oh. I used to get mm. it from people really boringly explaining things. The the yeah. tingles, yeah. Erin yeah. Fernov is a complete like she she's she is convinced that it's the most like important thing in the world she didn't know that she had it for years yeah, and she has too. it for loads of things and then when she discovered what it was she was like oh, I'm changed I'm changed I used Something to get like it when somebody really kindly but boringly tried to explain <laughs> something to me I'd go oh okay 
and and I'd get the ASMR thing and then somebody told me about it and I went, that's a thing. Yeah, it's mm. many YouTube channels where people yeah. will boringly explain yeah, I know. Yeah. <laughs> I think the mouth sound ones are disgusting and I will I, shut all uh, the mouth yeah, sound. I agree. Yeah, but that, that's where I'm just like, <laughs> somebody, there's something here that yeah. I think someone is lying. I yeah. think somebody's lying. Like, I know that there are definite, like the tapping thing, I, 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 I don't feel it, but I kind of see where you're coming from. Right, fingernails like, scratching on wood as well. Like kind of woody sounds, I guess. Yeah. Works. The sounds, I just don't think I've ever felt it. There's lots of mm. sounds that I enjoy, abstract noises, but I don't know if I get the sensory meridian like response. I definitely have. Um, but I, I also think there's something weirdly dystopian about the videos. Oh like my I f- God. I, like mm. I, I feel like there's something wrong. Yeah. I feel like it should have been. Uncanny Valley. Like. Yeah. It probably should have been something people didn't realize was a thing and just had. Now yeah. that it's been spoken, I feel like something is breaking in the people world. people making big money from just whispering into yeah. microphones. Feels like something from 2018. Yeah, you couldn't mm. make it up. Yeah. Do you know, even six years ago, like when when the whisper community was just starting <laughs> to kick off and you're trying to explain, I remember trying to pitch a piece on it to RTE, uh, to, to Arena, and they were like, that's not real. And I'm like, no, it is. It really is real. But it's, really um, real. it's fucking big money industry, you know. Yeah. But the tactile thing, it maybe it's not the sound of it, but like, holding like I, I I write on paper instead of in, in the computer most of the time and uh, there is something about, touch, about holding and touching things and I don't know if people still go and get regular comics I mean I like in no, the they, same way they do like, but I think that the difference was like if you're a comics person now it's a thing again it's like a niche yeah mm. whereas this was up on the newsstand along with like the economist in woman's way and it was like oh it's just mixed in it was just mixed you in just you just come across it you, you, you go know. to the news agent oh. and get to those you wouldn't go to a specialist comic shop so it was right. like, like a lot of those 20th century british comics they were just a children's equivalent of getting the newspaper so once a yeah. week you'd you'd your mom or dad would buy it for you mm. or you'd go get it do you think it'll ever come back? Like my that's nine-year-old internet. nephew still gets to be now. Oh, there you go. Every week. Hope. Yeah. Mm. You know. Yeah. And is it still on that lovely newsprint? Yes. There you go. Oh, uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. Is yeah. it all reprints or is it? No, they're new because Dennis new. has like a, a new haircut now and stuff. Okay. Ooh, and is he cool? Dennis. I think he's a little bit cool. Yeah. Does Dennis <laughs> Menace have an iPad? Probably does. Dennis loves ASMR. The amount of menace he can get up to an iPad is just doesn't not worth thinking about. Fucks the iPad through somebody's window. Menace. I'm menacing. Fuck y'all. Yeah, I wonder if there's any coming back, like, from this... Well, they all still exist. I mean, 2008 still exists. And it still produces good stuff whenever I look at it. But I just think its its role is different now. Like yeah, it's, no, I mean more the tactile object uh, object of the comic yeah. book and the, the, the things that exist only in paper and not online. And, like, maybe the secrecy of it. Like, that's what I love when I find, like, old books, old comics. Um discovering something for the first time is really powerful especially in the year of the internet yeah. where you kind of get maybe 0.5% of everything like that this I, I think I've said this a hundred times this podcast that's the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy the, like that the has iPhone. that has every answer like stick out a thumb and get a lift like that that is Douglas Adams yeah. predicted this but that means it also everything is slightly accessible to us whereas like I think why again why I fell into that comic was like I fucking have never seen anything like this before and it's kind of because a notification doesn't appear at the top of the comic every five minutes as yeah well. yeah it's like so, i feel very safe in here yeah. <laughs> yeah. i feel very unstressed out by this even though there's horrible pictures of like uh well, it's a whole other thing monsters. but like i have to keep my phone away from my when i'm in like when i'm reading or when i'm mm. doing anything i like i like reading paper i prefer reading paper yeah and there's evidence that it goes in better anyway like there's mm. evidence that you remember it better um but I think the tactile nature, it's like people say it about vinyl all the time, although I was never really into vinyl. So it's getting that big object and it. your music and, and the ceremony of like taking it out and putting it on. Oh, yeah, the fact you have to get up every 15 minutes to turn it over, yeah. which you don't have to do with a CD. Like yeah. I only had gone to vinyl the last couple of years, but there is, you have to pay a lot more attention to it. Yeah. Mm. You can't be background music really when it's vinyl. So there's so. all this stuff about mindfulness now. I mm. think that the process of using all these old art forms were like was much more mindful you had to think mm. there was much more in the process you know turning the page ritual like ritual. yeah i mean i, I still read books books yeah. books and i still write on paper but like i i think in terms of the subversion that you're talking about especially in the commentary yeah. like i guess where we go for commentary is twitter god help us but i i, I wonder if uh there can ever be anything like 
a weird comic that shows up in the newsstands that's talking about things. I, I wonder if there can be that again, if people would, because every, every fucking six months a magazine disappears. I think that there's, lo- like, I think the difference is not so much whether it's on the newsstand, it's it's how much else is on the newsstand. If you go into Easton, there's just a m- million publications. Mm. Um, but everything is niche stuff. And I think that's one of the, the modern age things is there isn't any, what, what makes something subversive is that it's meant to be doing one thing and in the process it's else. doing something else. Yeah. Um, and you, I think you get that more when people are all going to the same sources. Yeah. Mm. So people are trying to fit more into the thing. Um, and I think that's an amazing skill. Like there's certain TV shows that remind me of reading 2080 that me and Anna really like like mm. uh, Gotham and Z Nation which are meant to be dumb shows mm. but they're really clever about how dumb they're being or, and there's lots of kind of references and subtle little nods and winks to the audience that I just and I think I appreciate them because of the stuff I grew up on like Smash It's 2080 it reminds me of that thing of when you're a kid and you're watching a show and you go, oh, there's something else. There's yeah. something else going on. Um, even if you don't quite get to something else going yeah. on, it g- makes you hungry for more stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And and then years later, you, you're browsing a bookstore and you see a name that you remember from Smash It. <laughs> and you pick up a book and it blows your mind some more. It's good for you. Yeah. Sub- you're, you're kind of blowing my mind slightly even talking about cu- countercultural thing and subversion because I don't remember the last thing that I saw that felt subversive. Like I can't, I can't pull anything out of my, like list of extraordinarily sincere Netflix kind of consumption that felt like it was actively subverting something and not selling something to me. And I think it's just because everything is so directed. So mm. like if oh, yeah. you, if we're like people like us watch certain kinds of TV shows and those. Sh- TV shows are very well made and they're aimed for us and we watch them and we get more or less we might be surprised by what happens in a mm. show or but there's never any moment where you're going oh I just learned something new and I or it's changed my I brain a bit about something like that maybe in the last fucking seven years ten years is Adventure Time that's yeah, probably Adventure the Time's only a great example of them doing something yeah. completely like tricking the network into well Steven Universe is a bit like this as well tricking a network into allowing you to have a children's show that's actually about um, existentialism and like the boundaries of reality. there's a massive backstory that's totally unnecessary but brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Like there's no reason for Adventure Time to be as good as it is. That That's it. It's as no, because it's a bunch of brilliant fucking weirdos yeah. who are trying to do something unique and strange. Like I, I always forget that it's good because there are like t-shirts and fucking mugs with Jake the dog's face on it everywhere I turn and I'm, I, I get really repelled by stuff like that and uh, every every so often me and Carrie will be like we want a bit of adventure time I'm like I don't know if it's any good and then I'll sit down and like bawl my eyes out or have my brain fucking removed from my body or it's it's incredible but it is pushing back and it's doing something so that it shouldn't be doing Buffy the Vampire Slayer was like that in the 90s right. and like stuff like I think if you want to do something subversive you can't start out with uh, prestige television you can't be making true detective four and be genuinely subversive because everyone's expect oh we're going to see some really screwed up stuff now and like some really really boring dude is going to preach at us for a while and we know exactly what that's going to be i hate true detective really. I, saw, um, I fucking hate true detective. i fucking hated it um, yeah. i really like I, have, I didn't like season two but i like season one and three a whole lot so okay. i see i didn't yeah. like season one and okay. he ripped off alan moore Oh, really? And yeah. Hannibal sure just fucking came in all this fucking yeah. bodies stuck up on deer horns and shit. I was just like, I literally saw a television <laughs> show with that earlier on today. So the fucks. speech that Russ Cole gives at the end. Time is, the flat circle. Well, he's this one about the, the, the dark and the light and the... Um, oh, and the stars and stuff. Yeah, the yeah. stars. Mm-hmm. And that's directly taken from an Alan Moore comic called Top Ten. Sickener. A lot of people noticed it. Like, yeah. Like, I'm, uh, so you're wrong. I'll <laughs> perfectly happy you are. This is the only subversive thing about true detective is that you like it. <laughs> you know it gets an unfair rap and it's because of fandoms. I, I kind of hate fandoms now. I'm kind of got like yeah. Rick and Morty is so much better than its fandom will let you believe and the yeah. t-shirts and pennies will let you I'm believe. I'm afraid to say out loud that I enjoyed it. Yeah. Because I feel like if I do something will come back for me or I am in some way degrading yeah. myself mm. by saying I thought there was so much heart in it, you know, like it was that actually it fucking is really subversive. 
It's the fact that they're allowed as fans to take the the, the wrong message. I was from served it. a coffee by a man with a pickle rick tattoo on his forearm who was at least <laughs> thirty recently, and I nearly felt like going. I hope, yeah. never, I hope nobody ever kisses you on the mouth again. Like, yeah. how dare you? We just watched a pickle rick episode again the other day, and like, Christ. the whole fact that is that he does that to avoid dealing with his daughter's divorce and his role in it, and everybody's like, pickle rick, pickle rick. It's like, no, you're that's missing not, the point, you're fucker. It entirely. Yeah. But it's like the same thing happened with um, Breaking Bad. And, oh, yeah. and, and then the last episode of Breaking Bad is total fan service for the mm. bad fans. Because there's people, you're not men, you really, really aren't, I hate being prescriptive, but I'm going to say this, <laughs> you really, really aren't meant to watch Breaking Bad and go, it's badass he became a drug dealer. <laughs> yeah. Like, But there's a lot of people who watched it thinking that you're meant to, like I think some people got this message about uh fiction that you have to identify with the lead character and consequently mm. no matter what they do as long as they're winning you're happy and the, it's the not always episode, a total mirror it's a piece of a mirror it's not meant to reflect it's meant to make you consider and it's meant to distort yeah. and inform and invoke curiosity it's not always meant to be about you Finton you know what I mean like <laughs> but the last episode like they, even the fact that they brought in I know we're moved away from 2018 now we're on oh, Breaking Bad okay we do this we're, all, we're in the big bracket we're yeah. in the big bracket so in Breaking Bad they did something really cheap in the last season. They brought in a bunch of Nazis who were really, really bad. And that allowed you to, they actually, that encourages you to root for Walt, who isn't a good person at all. Watched, but he yeah. gets this out in the last series where you're allowed to enjoy him killing Nazis mm. so that the bad fans can go, ah, he's so badass. I watched the first two episodes and I found them so upsetting and sad that I walked and it was that year where everyone was like oh my god have you seen Breaking Bad and I was like kind of and I didn't like it and it was it was kind of a I remember being pushed back on really hard by being like I actually I'm kind of good for Breaking Bad because I really didn't like Walter White and I know that that was meant to be challenging yeah but I was so off put by it I was like this is fucking horrible like what is going on here and that cult of personality that, that evolved around Walter White like it's not dissimilar to that cult of personality that evolves around Rick Sanchez, mm. where it's like, look at this mean, shitty dude who's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't know what is wrong there. I feel like there is such a, a disconnect from, from what the thing is meant to be doing because Rick and Morty is like, I would also, by the way, never recommend ever going and looking on any for any sort of Rick and Morty fandom because then there there is the, the dudes with the pickle rick tattoos and then there is a large cohort of people who write a lot of fan fiction which is yeah. Rick Morty slash like oh yeah God. more than you want to fucking have to deal with I was like I, oh, I they should it. shut the internet they should down. shut yeah, the, they like should. we have fucking beaten it so there's there is legions of people who are obsessed with this show for like a myriad of really fucking weird like not sound reasons but there's the episode where uh, Morty shows Summer the, their graves in the garden. That's amazing. It's fucking amazing. It's oh, the, fucking the first amazing. episode, those great. That's the re- that's the moment I realize this show is proper is proper subversive. Yeah. Is it the fourth episode where? Sp- spoiler alert! Do we yeah. give spoiler? Ah, oh, it's old. No, we do it's not. <laughs> <laughs> the fourth episode where they abandon a universe, go to another universe, so that Morty now knows that none of his family are really his family. And they and they buried the bodies in the garden, and then they just move on. Yeah, that's just dark. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's fucking so dark. dark. There's an episode in the season where they just start crying in the spaceship. Yeah, they just start crying like this is we can't keep doing this. This is just too much. <laughs> and Sorry, like, I'm laughing because <laughs> I was really funny. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, like, if I saw someone, like, we're saying all this, I love Rick and Morty. But if I saw someone in a Rick and Morty T-shirt, I'd be like, ugh. Every time I walk into well, Penny, I feel the same about Breaking Bad. Which I wouldn't yeah. feel about yeah. someone when they say they're like 2000 AD or Smash It. Yeah. It's almost like a, this is probably someone I'm on the same wavelength on some reason. Well, so level. back to like, segueing back to 2000 AD, yeah. like, I think that the, the reason, the fact that it was a bit of a pick and mix, so that, like, I can't remember who it was, but the ha- Halo Jones was, or Halo Jones, I don't know how you pronounce a lot of these things, was, was an amazing comic. And it was Ian Gibson did the art and Alan Moore did the writing. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of weirdly, there was very few female characters at the time. Um, she was a female character. It was all about class. She was, it was, she was an ordinary person. She wasn't a space captain or a bounty hunter. Mm. 
and that comic became hugely culty. So loads of bands. I remember seeing a band on, to the, on Top of the Pops and one of them had a Hallie Lowe Jones t-shirt. So because there's so much in it, people pick the bits they like as mm. well. And and Torquem added the baddie who says, be pure, be vigilant, behave, mm. became this kind of ironic. In, um, I think it's in the Electric Dreams video that Phil Oakley, you know Phil Oakley? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah. think he's wearing a 2018 t-shirt in that, if you look closely. Mm. Um, like it just snuck around I guess and t-shirts like that like on the I guess the Breaking Bad Rick Sanchez fucking conundrum you would have to go a long way out of your way to find that shit right back then like they weren't yeah. everywhere like you probably had to find one or get one printed or like I, I I would say it was harder to get things of this do you know what I mean I can't I can't remember like I, mm. I don't know if the people got them made or if they did sell t-shirts like there was I remember when there was no comic shops in Dublin and then Forbidden Planet opened on Dawson Street in 1989 or 90 I could be totally wrong and I remember going along to a signing Brendan McCarthy who subsequently went on and wrote Mad Max and uh, Grant Morrison were signing and they were like all I can remember is they were deep like I was a nerdy teenager and they were deeply hip dudes like mm. Grant Morrison had a cane Whoa. <laughs> and, they were like, and they were signing stuff just sitting in Forbidden Planet so it became comics became started to become more acceptable and then you'd go to Forbidden Planet to buy your 2008 collections because they had the graphic novels and you'd see the other stuff that the artists were doing like like Alan Moore did Watchmen and mm. and Grant Morrison did Arkham Asylum and there was all and, there and Watchmen was fabulous as well yeah. like those they were gorgeous I don't observe the film or subsequent anything but that original yeah. yellow volume yeah. like again I got that around the same time as V for Vendetta and I fuck and again it was saying something else it was but saying it's another example more. of the bad fans because oh, yeah. like people I think the people who've remade Watchmen and made the film kind of missed fans. the point of what the comic's about oh, Zach and, and Alan Moore's look Watchmen at all these broken alone. fucking people <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know so look at all Moore's, these lonely fucks <laughs> Alan Moore's kind of almost apologised for that like a lot of the comics he made uh, people he was trying to say you can do more with comics and all people heard was you can be ultra violent and use swear words mm. <laughs> um, and there's a raft of awful stuff that's partly influenced by 2008 and people like Alan Moore that happens in American comics in the early 90s where it's like just gritty for no purpose and really macho and um but that's that that is that is the other thing ultimately is that like I guess comic I'm I'm actually nearly afraid to start talking about comics and I probably shouldn't. I feel like there's a there's like a cohort of the internet who have who will have already somehow have picked up that we have talked about disparagingly of Rick and Morty and will discover then that I actually find I find the whole uh, hyper masculinity of comics so off putting, which is devastating because when I first read them, I adored them like Red yeah. Sun fucking took my head off my shoulders like I read all these these graphic novels. But uh, the further that I lent into it as a teenager, the harder it pushed me away. And I still, I kind of get real mad about it, like properly well, like. I mean, like the Rob Liefeld yeah. kind of era was when, yeah. when you would have been reading comics, I guess then. So I love just, Rob Liefeld, he's so terrible. I got, did you ever see that article just of like his 20 worst Drawings, anatomical things? Yeah. I read that like once a year, I just love it. Because all the, yeah. actually, going through this, all the women look great. They mm. all look, like, look like women. There's a couple of like, there's still a, there's still a bit but, of of, uh, of sexualization, but I think like a lot of the people who, but like a lot of the things that like those fans of comics give, uh, they're uh, can I say officially a lot of those people are just doing it wrong. They're understanding comics wrong, and they under yeah. Um, I, and I don't I don't really I do like being prescriptive. They are doing <laughs> yeah. it wrong. Like there's amazing like one of the things that I always get annoyed about with comics is I, it's my favorite medium. Since 2008, I was at Decaf yesterday, you know, the... Oh, shit, yeah, yeah the fair. Was and it good? I bought a bunch of stuff. And, and there's amazing, like, there's amazing things you can do with comic that's away from superheroes and adventure comics. But the medium is so dominated mm. by superheroes and adventure comics. And I guess what 2008 did at its best is it tried to shoehorn other stuff and other ideas into that. Mm. Um, and that's what was kind of subversive about it. Because you, you went along to read it to be... Um, to read adventure comics, but then you got a dose of subversive humor, you got a dose of class politics, bit a bit of Thatcherite satire, <laughs> and and you learned about antiheroes. Like I actually think the main thing, like I don't think mainstream culture really started doing antiheroes till the nineties or nineties. No, I was saying because they did a Punisher film in the nineties, but it was like he yeah. was purely a hero Punisher. He wasn't anti-hero Punisher wasn't until yeah, like nineties, I think, especially in TV. Yeah. Like, 
Tony Soprano, I guess, was what, 99? So, and maybe the entire cast of Six Feet Under. Because half of the characters... Not, well, is Homer Simpson an anti-hero? <laughs> These are the questions. That's a good question. Flawed parenting. But yeah, that's a really good... I don't know if I remember reading anything as a child that had a protagonist who might have been a kind of a dick. So the whole thing was, say, Judge Dredd, like, was... He'd be the hero in certain contexts, and then there'd be then he'd be the baddie in other contexts. Mm. Like there'd be mm. some things about there'd be a democracy movement, and he'd be the baddie in that story. Mm. Then there'd be a another story that was about crime, and he'd be the goody in that context. But you knew reading it that he was not like whiter than white; that he was like a pretty morally gray. morally gray kind of character, and and loads of the characters like Nemesis as well and Zenith, my favorite ones. But it it's actually good because. You say he's morally great, but it's because he's following the law to the letter of the law. Yeah. So the fact that the law itself is morally great is a really interesting lesson to take from Judge Dredd, I think. Yeah. Which a lot of centrists could probably take <laughs> notice of. Um, yeah. There's actually, there, there, there's talk of a TV series of Judge Dredd oh, yeah. kind of spinning off from the last film, which was mm. decent, not perfect, but decent. Yeah. Because they did an awful... Sylvester Stallone one in the 90s. Oh, yeah. Because I was going to say, was that John Travolta? I was like, no, no Sylvester, Sylvester Stallone. Stallone. Yeah. yeah. May as well have been John Travolta. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we could just go and read comics. Yeah. Let's, I think let's we should just, go just do that. Everybody. Sit under the table and read comics. Yeah. So uh, is there like a certain arc of Judge Red or anything or certain 2080 thing you'd recommend someone to start with? Yeah. Where uh, do people come in if they were going yeah, to start? Because it is huge. Well, you can get, so you can get the collected versions of different stories and ones I've reread recently and still think are great are the Zenith comics by Grant Morrison I think there's four books of those you'd get them in Forbidden Planet Grant Morrison and Steve Yole did the art uh, anything by Alan Moore Alan Moore did that Halo Jones thing with Ian Gibson he did a really funny comic called D.R. and Quinch which is about two it started as a one-off about two alien juvenile delinquents who come to Earth during the prehistoric age and screw with the planet and basically leads to us but then he did a spin-off series about Deer and Quinch which is really funny it's just called Deer and Quinch's Guide to Life and it's um, two kind of hip speaking college students from like another galaxy okay. yeah. cool. so uh, where can we find you on stuff or where can we find your, your stuff uh, follow me on Twitter yeah yeah. Mm-hmm. Like get him good tweets <laughs> so thank you so much Pat Crane thank that you that was for Thanks, everybody. Oh, wait, we should do our things yeah. before we do that. Sarah, where can we find you and stuff? At Grisky on Twitter and at Sarah Griffin on Instagram. My books are in shops, I suppose. Yeah. Alan, and where can we find you? I am Alan underscore McGuire everywhere. And Juvenalia is Juvenalia underscore pod on Twitter and Juvenalia pod on Instagram. And we have a Patreon where there's a bonus episode about Scott Pilgrim. If you're into comics and stuff as well. And thank you, Dean McDonald, for artwork. Thank you to Cassie for producing the episode. And we're on Tall Tales. This is the Tall Tales podcast. Uh, Bye, everybody. Bye.